Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. There are new warnings on cigarettes sold in Canada. Ontario schools are going back to basics, while those in B.C. are looking forward. The Bulldogs Foundation is helping improve our health, discussing grief and loss in a new book, and one of the hammers hangs up his boots. The JMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. New regulations from Health Canada that is requiring these individual cigarettes being labeled with uh, an anti-smoking message. It was first announced last year. It became official today and it makes Canada the first country to do this. Here's Canadian Cancer Society senior policy analyst Rob Cunningham. It's going to reach every smoker with every cigarette and every puff in every community of the country. For you to experiment by quote-unquote borrowing a cigarette from a friend, it's going to mean that they will see the cigarettes, even they may not see the package. Uh, it's going to prompt discussion, um, including by smokers during smoke breaks. You know, what, what warning have you got? Terry Dean is the president and CEO of the Canadian Lung Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Dean, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great. How are you? I'm okay. What do you think about these individually printed warnings on each and every cigarette? Do you agree with Mr. Cunningham and, and, and think that at least they're having the conversation? Wholeheartedly. And, and ourselves and the Heart and Stroke Foundation supported the move by Health Canada. And, you know, they've set a goal of a prevalence rate of less than 5% by 2035, which isn't that far away. Uh, and, you know, one, no single policy or no single regulation or action is going to, to do it. It'll take a, a comprehensive approach. But, you know, Canada sent, uh, set a precedent back in 2001, I believe, in putting graphic health warnings. Other countries followed. And we know that had an impact. So we're hoping this this move at least starts the conversation because we need a few million people to stop smoking between now and 2035 if we're going to hit that goal. And we know it's difficult to do. You mentioned the graphic warnings on cigarette pack packages having an impact. How big of an impact? How? What are the stats looking like in terms of the number of smokers in this country then compared to now? Well, certainly, you know, we have historically low levels today versus what we saw over 20 years ago. We're looking at about a 12% annual rate across the country. It's about 3% for teens and youth. So, you know, those are historical lows, but we still need to get them down. And, and we've seen smoking rates decrease after a number of things are implemented uh, to affect it. We also know that people need uh, help stopping smoking with cessation efforts. So again, uh, it's a layered approach to these types of efforts. Um, and we talk to many people who, who really do need support. They want to, to, they want to stop smoking but it is an addiction. So we don't want to blame them. We really want to support them as best we can. But it's important that we nudge adults and we dissuade teens from perhaps entering into it. And that's the whole effort of putting warnings on, on the individual cigarettes. Terry Dean is the president and CEO of the Canadian Lung Association. You can get more details on their website at lung.ca. You mentioned teenagers and, and, and younger people who are picking up that addiction. And more and more are doing so now through vaping. What are you seeing in that category? Alarming results, Rick, uh, which has us very concerned. Um, you know, we're, we're doing some good work. We're seeing declining rates on tobacco, but we're, we're very fearful of what may happen and result as a result of very high rates of teen vaping at this stage. We know it's a gateway to tobacco use. The research proves it. 
Um, so we're continuing to work with the government and push the government uh, to put appropriate regulations in place to deter that from happening as well. It seems like this is the new cool thing to do. Hey, I'm not going to not gonna smoke a cigarette. I'm going to vape because everyone else is doing it, and this is the cool thing. Uh, there are some serious health impacts here, though. No question. Uh, and as I said, we know it's a gateway to tobacco use. We know there is harm that is caused by in the lungs from inhaling uh, the vapor. Now, in many cases, when we look at tobacco, we have longitudinal studies that tell us over time what happens to the lungs uh, and the rest of the body, for that matter, uh, brain development for, for younger children, those types of things. We don't have the advantage of those longitudinal studies. But what we've seen so far remains very frightening. Uh, and we're trying to do everything we can to ensure that we have fewer youth entering into that market and deterring those that are using it at this point. Well, I'll applaud Health Canada for trying to think of some new ways to discourage people from either starting or continuing smoking, whether it's smoking or vaping. I do have an issue with the government still grabbing the taxes from tobacco sales. It's almost a yin and a yang where you get this you know, encouraging message to say, hey, stop. But then the government's like, yeah, we'll take your money as well. How, how do you view that? It's complicated, uh, incredibly complicated. But we do know we do know the harms. There's 48,000 people die in Canada a year attributable to, it's a leading cause of, uh, leading preventable cause of death in Canada. So we have to take some action. It's putting a burden on our healthcare system. And yes, there is a tax dollar that does come to the government. And we also know tax levers are one of the most effective policy implementations that we can uh, put into effect. So it is a comp you know, super complicated topic, but I think it's, it's something we're not going to solve this overnight. It's going to take a longitudinal approach. And I think all these levers that I've mentioned are going to have to come into effect because we have to reduce rates and we need to reduce at the same time the burden on our healthcare system. In our final 90 seconds, if there's someone out there listening thinking, all right, now I'm now I'm doing it. Now I'm quitting. You know, this is the last straw. What help is out there for them? Well, certainly there are cessation uh, programs available. Uh, you can certainly go and see your healthcare provider and ask for a prescription to have uh, nicotine replacement therapy. And we know those those practices do actually work. Um, so we encourage people to seek help. Uh, there's a number of different places. There are helplines. You can call helplines in any, any province across the country. Um, but there is help out there. So it's a complicated effort. It's difficult. Um, so don't try to do this alone. Seek help. Uh, and everyone will be there to try and support you as best we can because we really do want to get to that that target of less than five by 2035. Great supports and statistics online as well at lung.ca. Terry, appreciate the time this morning. My pleasure. Terry Dean is the president and CEO of the Canadian Lung Association. Talking about these new individual messages on each and every cigarette that's going to be manufactured here in Canada. And these messages are going to be in English and French. They'll range from warnings about harming children to damaging organs to causing leukemia and impotence. And get a load of this stat that I found earlier today on lung.ca. More than 400,000 youth in grades 6 to 12 and 275 young adults aged 20 to 24 reported vaping in the last 30 days. That's as many people as there are in Halifax. That's a lot of kids. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Another part of the Better Schools and Student Outcomes Act, as we heard from Education Minister Stephen Lecce, is that there's a new regulation within it 
that asks school boards to report details of what teachers actually learn during PD days or professional development days. So we've heard from OSSTF President Karen Littlewood, who says she has no problem with this bill except for this. So it looks like the government has set some priorities, and that's wonderful. But what they haven't done is offered any of the money for the supports that are needed in order to achieve those goals. So that's the concern that we continue to have. It all comes down to the money. And, and all this is happening while the province and the teachers unions are trying to nail down their next collective bargaining agreement. Teachers have been working without a deal for, well, for quite a while now. Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. What do we know about the provincial government's back-to-basics bill? Yeah, the the province wants to really uh, give itself a little bit more control over the outcomes that students will have in the classroom, right? So school boards and, um, you know, directors of education, as an example, I mean, they all report to the Ministry of Education anyway. But now the Ministry of Education wants better alignment. They want to uh, you know, provide what the priorities should be for the upcoming school year and, and really uh, you know, set in motion a reporting system to make sure that you know, the Ministry of Education can keep track, very close track, of exactly whether its priorities are being achieved and how those outcomes are being um, you know, seen and borne out throughout the school system. So, you know, for example, they want to make sure that uh, students are set up for a better, I mean, a lot of these priorities, by the way, are, you know, quite high level. They're, they're not very specific, like we want a specific grade in reading or a specific, um, you know, a- achievement in math. It, it's, it's a lot of uh, larger things, like we want to make sure that uh, there's a good focus on students' well-being in the classroom, we want to make sure that students are being set up for future uh, success. Those kinds of things are being set up as the priorities uh, by the Ford government for this, at least for this upcoming school year. All of this is coming amid negotiations with teachers unions. Is this, you know, and some are saying, you know, this is a power grab or, you know, the, the province has too much oversight. Is this creating some friction between the two sides or added friction? Well, there kind of has always been friction between the Ford government and, you know, teachers unions, education unions. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, the teachers unions under this government held province-wide strikes in 2019, just before the pandemic. And, you know, it just as recently as last year, CUPE had a massive war with the Ford government in which the government resorted to using the ultimate sledgehammer tool of the notwithstanding clause and imposing a contract on that union. So a lot of the teachers unions in that time have taken a step back, right? They, they're monitoring what the situation is. OSSTF is an example. They keep going to the government asking them for additional bargaining dates, but they claim that the government has only provided them with one. So it, it is a bit of a head scratcher to kind of understand what the government's um, is, is looking for here or what their game plan is. What we do know is that the government, at least when it came to the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, and I have no doubts that this was also offered to all the other teachers unions, they offered them a 5% increase over a four-year contract. So basically 1.25% per year. And the only reason we know that was because um, somebody within the union had leaked us uh, to Global News, those documents outlawing exactly what the province was offering. So you can imagine during a period of high inflation, 5% over four years is not necessarily for some teachers going to cut it. OSSTF is an example representing uh, public secondary school teachers. They say, look, you know, we don't even have a full package 
fund the Ford government to even reject if there was one to reject. So it's unclear as to why almost one year after their contracts expired, this process is still lingering on. But there's a collision coming, and that's the school year. And, you know, as much as the government said that they wanted to avoid this dragging out during the school year, it seems like it's going to happen during the school year, whatever happens. Last one for you. We've got about a minute to talk about this, and this is the... Uh, the the details surrounding PD days and what teachers actually learn and do on professional development days, is, is that coming out of left field or was this expected to be in this bill all along? No, for the teachers union, it is coming out of left field. For the school boards, it's coming out of left field because uh, so, so PD days are... Uh, a lot of times the curriculum is actually directed by the Ontario government. It might be, you know, we've got uh, changes to the math curriculum or the science curriculum or English. And, you know, you need to be able to instruct your teachers of what the changes are. So that's filtered down to the boards. The boards are what choose the actual PD days. The teachers unions and teachers themselves often have no involvement. Some teachers say they find out about, you know, what the agenda items are maybe the day before. Uh, But, what the government wants to do is bring transparency to it. So 14 days, two weeks before um, the PD day actually happens, they want the board to publicly post what the PD day is about, what their teachers are going to be learning, um, you know, who's going to be there, what instruction or who the instructor is going to be, all kinds of information. Now, boards and teachers have both said to me they've never had a parent actively seek out this information before and if a parent today or you know in the last school year were to ask for it they could easily get it but they've just never had anyone actually ask for it people have just accepted that it's a professional development day that teachers get as part of their duties Um, and a lot say what they learn in those pd days goes right back into the classroom because it's instruction given to teachers that instruction in the, is then passed down to students. Really interesting stuff. Colin, always appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for waking up with us. My pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. And, you know, uh, I, I, I just get the sense or ask the question that, you know, this back to basics approach, which I get, reading, writing, math, we need these staples. Is it going to create smarter students who are better prepared for post-secondary education and or the workforce? I hope so. I'm not 100% sure, though. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Do you remember getting A on a test? Or, you know, if you were like me, it was more often than not a B or a C or a D if I did not put in the work. Well, A, B, C's, D's, even the dreaded F are all going to vanish when the school year begins this fall in at least one Canadian province. And that province being BC. It's doing away with letter grades for students in kindergarten to grade nine. Here to talk about it is Annie Kidder, Executive Director with People for Education. Annie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. So BC is transferring or or transitioning from the letter grades to what they're calling a proficiency scale, and it's going to focus on four kind of key areas, emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. Can you talk a little bit about their transition? So, uh, just to be clear, too, uh, still, if you write a test, you would get a mark on that test. So, this is about the uh, reporting to parents and students about how they're doing. And what they're saying in BC is they're going to report five times a year. And their goal and the the reason they're doing this is that, um, you know, what the evidence shows, it's that reporting on progress 
makes the biggest difference. So as opposed to, okay, you're done. We've judged you here. You're a D or whatever. My report card always said, you know, and he could work harder. Um, those kinds of things. But it's it's getting away from that idea of uh, you failed or you succeeded in, the, in that very kind of singular way going, what we're going to talk about um, is is how well you're progressing. And it's not going to be just, you know, you're progressing well or not progressing well. There's going to be a lot more that goes into that. So for one thing, students have to, will have to talk um, and, you know, communicate on these same reports, how well they think they're doing, what else they think they need to work at. Um, and there will be conversations back and forth. So they're saying there'll be three written things that come home and two other kind of modes of communication every year. And it goes with a change that's already happened in BC where as opposed to some other places, uh, there's no kind of back to basics. It's more, okay, what, what do all kids need to know and be able to do and understand in order to thrive in this, you know, very messy, complex world. So if, if the, if the thinking about what you need to be able to know, do and understand is, is broader, then how do we report on it in a way that's not simplistic? So the report cards will have more words and they'll have more communication back and forth with parents and they will involve the students in the actual reporting. So at the end of the day, do you think this is going to be a better system and, and is it revolutionary? Is this being done before? Oh, I don't think it's revolutionary, but I think that it's it's kind of a sign of the times in terms of what we used to call, you know, dealing with 21st century skills. It's maybe too late to start calling them that now, but <laughs> there's a huge understanding uh, in among employers, for one thing, but also in the world that it's about a lot more than, the, you know, success is about a lot more, or being able to thrive in the world is about a lot more than the three R's. So then we have to figure if it's about more than the three R's, then how are we... The reporting is incredibly important. Reporting to kids and to their families and having that conversation back is very, very important. Nobody's throwing that out. Uh, but it's like, how then do we talk about something that's beyond whether or not you can, you know, you know your three times tables, which again, those things are very important. Nobody's saying it's not important to have uh, those kinds of skills, but we're saying in today's world, it's about more than that. So, and I'm not sure it's totally revolutionary. And, uh, you know, people have experimented with, um, e- you know, even in Ontario too, it's like, well, I'm not going to give out grades this year until the very, very end. Um, and what ho- what the, the goal is, and the evidence seems to be, is what it builds is an ongoing conversation that, that you're not just judged once or three times a year, that you're always thinking about, okay, I can, I can get this far, but I, I need to push harder in this area. And again, the, you know, we've gone beyond, it's just about learning facts. It's actually learning how to keep on learning or go, oh, I learned this in this subject. I could apply it over here in this subject. And in this way, report cards will reflect that messier, bigger learning of kind of what some people call transferable skills that, again, you, you need in the world uh, to, um, to thrive. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Annie Kidder, the Executive Director with People for Education. We've got a couple of minutes, and I want to reflect on a phrase that you used earlier on in our conversation, back to basics, because that is basically what the bill here in Ontario, Bill 98, is kind of referring to in terms of getting students back to basics, reading, writing, math. Is that the right approach? I think we shouldn't be going back to anything 
these days. Uh, again, if we look at the complex, messy world, going back to something that, you know, used to exist, you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even 20 years ago is not what anybody needs. Now, I am not saying that these subjects aren't important. It is vital that kids can read and write, do math. Uh, those are vitally important, but it's also vitally important that kids understand how to solve complex problems, that they're able to uh, look at their work and go, hmm, I wonder how I could make this better. That's part of kind of critical thinking, a very simplistic definition of critical thinking. It's vital that they know how to communicate effectively, that they can collaborate. And especially, as I said before, because of the way, how quickly everything is changing in the world, because of, you know, all the discussions we're having on AI, we don't, we don't need kids who can, who, we're not going to be able to replace machines, but they need to have all those kind of human skills that are important. So again, not back to anything, but how are we going forward to to include all of those other vital, uh, you know, competencies and skills on top of the so-called basics? We we like to call these the new basics. And, and one of those, at least in BC system, will be a focus on social emotional awareness and relations. How big is that in a post-COVID educational landscape? Well, it's big and again, and it can sound kind of like social, emotional, it sounds like, you know, kind of soft and mushy, but it's actually not. Again, these are learning real skills because, and relationships too. So if you think about the way the world works now and you think about how much is being replaced by AI, what's really important is that you're able to work with other people, you're able to understand different perspectives and points of view, uh, you're able to collaborate whether or not you agree on everything or not, you know, so if we think about and whatever you're going into, whether you're going to be a carpenter or a surgeon or a you know lawyer, these are foundational skills now for the world. Um, so these social emotional skills, uh, understanding relationships, those are their skills. And I guess the other thing about this is it's getting it out of the notion that these are kind of character attributes. It's like, well, you're born able to do this or you're not. These are teachable, learnable skills. So you have to actually, again, this is the worry about going back to anything. We have to make sure teachers are, you know, uh, capable of teaching these skills. How do you learn these things? How do you learn them in kindergarten? How do you learn them in grade 10? And how are we making sure that we're setting up all kids for success, no matter what pathway they're going to take into, you know, Again, the very messy world. I'm really eager to see how this all pans out in BC, and uh, who knows, other provinces may be quick to follow suit. Annie, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Annie Kidder is the Executive Director of People for Education. Some great comments from her. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bulldogs Foundation is teaming up with the Brant Community Healthcare uh, System to launch a special 50-50 draw. And the proceeds will benefit the healthcare community in uh, places like Brant County. The online draw began last Friday and it continues uh, up until August the 11th. So there's still time to go to Bulldogs5050.com. That's bulldogs 50 50.com and get in on the 50-50 draw. Here to talk about it is Kerry Wilson, the Executive Director of the Brant Community Healthcare System Foundation, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Kerry, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. How did this partnership with the Bulldogs Foundation develop? 
Well, uh, as you know, we're very excited to be welcoming the uh, the newly named Brantford Bulldogs to our community. And we had the opportunity to sit down with the Bulldogs Foundation uh, Executive Director, Peggy Chapman. And uh, the Bulldogs have been so supportive of community causes in Hamilton and now in Brantford for a number of years. And so we're really, really excited uh, to have been able to partner with them and receive the proceeds from this, their their first Bulldogs uh, Foundation 50-50 in the Brantford community and uh, raise funds uh, in support of our healthcare system and particularly for pediatric and infant care needs here at the Brantford General. So the money is going to be used for uh, this particular um, section of the healthcare system. It's called the Pediatric Acute Referral Service or PARS at the Brantford General Hospital. What does that do? Yes, it is. It's, uh, well, as it's named, uh, it's an acute referral service for pediatric patients. So the emergency department here at the Brantford General sees approximately 8,000 pediatric patients a year. And so those patients, many of them uh, require access to specialized uh, health uh, care and uh, to a pediatric uh, specialist. And we have nine pediatric uh, specialists here at the Brant Community Healthcare System providing 24-hour access to care. And so when little ones come for our emergency, they're able to be referred and fast-tracked, if you will, through this PARS clinic. It's also a community access clinic. So uh, family physicians in the community can refer their patients to be able to see a pediatrician quickly and efficiently through this newly renovated PARS clinic. And is is part of this plan, too, to, to purchase new equipment? There's always healthcare equipment that hospital systems need. Is that part of this equation as well? It absolutely is, Rick. Um, so we're looking to fundraise as well for the, for the equipment, not only for the PARS clinic, but we also have a list of pieces of patient equipment that we need um, to fundraise for for, our, for the pediatric uh, unit, as well as our neonatal intensive care unit. So it's things like isolates, and infant resuscitators, vital signs monitors specialized for our pediatric patients. Uh, so we have about $500,000 worth of patient equipment that we're also looking to fundraise for this year alone. Bulldogs Foundation launching a special 50-50 draw with proceeds benefiting pediatric care needs at the Brant Community Health System. You can get your 50-50 ticket online now at bulldogs5050.com. That's bulldogs5050.com up to August the 11th. Is there a fundraising goal in mind, Carrie? We, we'd like to raise uh, at least $10,000, so we'd like to see that jackpot go up. It's at a, a little over $1,000 now. And don't forget that the early bird uh, is also the early bird prize. You can uh, get in before August 4th and uh, you could win up to $1,000 of gas gift cards. Wow. Hey, that's not a bad idea, especially with gas prices these days. Uh, Post-pandemic, how is the healthcare system doing in uh, in Brant? Um, we are, like every other healthcare system, working very, very diligently to try and address the volumes uh, that we're seeing in our community. Uh, we are uh, we have a high volume of patients that we are providing care to on a daily basis. And so making sure that we have that patient equipment for our caregivers to deliver care is critically important uh, for us. And, and without uh, an initiative like this, a fundraiser like this, would you just be asking the public or even the government to say, hey, can you give us some money? So fundraising doesn't come from the government. Uh, a lot <laughs> of people don't realize that healthcare dollars um, from the government don't necessarily pay for all the patient equipment. So we would be appealing to our donor community uh, and asking them for their help and support to raise funds for patient equipment. And it is tough sledding fundraising these days because it seems like everyone has their hand out. 
They do, and I think the pandemic showed us uh, what happens if we don't have access to exemplary care for our healthcare system. So it's more important now uh, for so many of us uh, than it ever has been to make sure that we have healthcare systems there to take care of us in our time of need. Well said. Carrie, good luck with this, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Carrie Wilson is the executive director of the Branch Community Healthcare System Foundation. You can find out more information on that organization online at bchsys, bchsysfoundation.org. And to get your 5050 ticket, go online to bulldogs5050.com, bulldogs5050.com. Uh, three tickets for five bucks, 10 for 10, 60 for 20. You can also get 120 tickets for 30 bucks. That seems like steal of the century. Uh, and as Kerry mentioned, there is an early bird prize to be drawn on August the 4th for a chance to win $1,000 in SO gas cards, which would be a pretty sweet prize as well. Go online today, bulldogs5050.com, and you just might win. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new book for children out that takes a unique approach to discussing things like death, uh, loss and grief, and the diverse practices and traditions around the world. Rishma Gavani is the author of this new book called The Stars That Shine For You and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rishma, good morning. How are you? Hi, Rick. Good to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. This is a deeply personal story that hits close to home for you. Tell us about this new book. Um, this this book is a you know a passion project for me, and one of my side hustles is um, celebrating diversity in children's literature. I've um, gone through a really tough experience with um, my husband, my late husband. The tenses get very confusing for me, who was diagnosed with a very um, you know serious, incurable terminal illness. Uh, six years before his passing, and he passed in 2020. And I decided to take a deep dive in marrying both my passion for diversity in children's literature and taking that and putting it together with grief advocacy and seeing what can I do to be able to tackle a tough topic for children in a really friendly and non-scary way. Was there a point in time following your husband's death that you thought, this is what I have to do? And, and how long was that after the fact? You know, grief isn't linear. It's all over the place. And so there really isn't a roadmap. There's so many different feelings all competing at the same time. And I think, you know, that first year was just survival. Second year was so tough. But I started to put things into practice and, you know, the idea just sprung on me and it was cathartic and it was it was a really beautiful way for me to honor him and keep his legacy alive. The book is called The Stars That Shine For You, and we're in discussion with the author, Rishma Gavani, who I, I'll have to commend you. This is a very tough topic, and obviously it's close to home for you, but as you mentioned, yeah, this is cathartic, and it's a great legacy for him as well. Discussing grief and loss, I mean, it's hard for adults to do, uh, obviously for kids as well. How does your book help uh, trigger that discussion? It is definitely a, a tough topic. And I think more than children, it's tough for adults. I, like, I've written a book on grief around the world, and I still struggle sometimes. I'm getting better at it, being able to market it, for example. I was 
pitching it as something that was a book that's a good resource, keep it on your bookshelf, you're gonna need it. At some point, you're gonna need it. Um, because all of us, what's universal and what we share around the world in any community, in any culture, in any faith is we're gonna lose people that are close to us of all ages and backgrounds. And I've shifted that to just keep this book in your rotation of everyday books. So if this is just a, one of a plethora of books that your children have in their home library, it doesn't become this uncomfortable elephant in the room, go get the book, oh my loss. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't need to be that way. It's just a different topic. And I think what we can do is equip the next generation to be able to do it a little bit better than us because we put it in the closet. It's very difficult. And I think normalizing it is just making it uh, part of our everyday, not only our everyday library, but everyday conversation, because it's a reality that we all face and will face. And so it's inevitable. And we have to have those discussions with our children and do it in a way that's age appropriate and normalizes it. That is awesome. Having it in the rotation is is certainly the way to go because, as we know, death and loss is incredibly difficult. And just having this, not 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 necessarily to say this is going to normalize it, but it will it will ease children and I think adults as well who read this book into the having that conversation. In our final thirty seconds together, where can our listeners pick up their copy of The Stars That Shine for You? Any online retailer will uh, will carry the book, uh, The Stars That Shine For You. I always like to support local and support Canadian. Go to Indigo and uh, search up either my name, Rashma Govani, or the title, The Stars That Shine For You. And, um, and yeah, would really appreciate the support. Rishma, a fantastic book. Looking forward to picking it up myself and uh, sharing it with my kids. Thank you for the time. Best of luck with this. Thank you so much, Rick. Have a wonderful day. You too. Rishma Gavani is the author of the new book, The Stars That Shine For You. And if her name sounds familiar, yes, she too is the author of Sushi and Samosas, A Trip of Tasty Transformations. We had her on the air when that book was released too, and that is a great read. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I was at Tim Hortons Field yesterday afternoon for a news conference in regards to a player announcement from Forge FC and defender Ashton Morgan announcing his retirement yesterday from pro soccer. Got a little misty in, uh, I know it was raining, but it got a little misty in uh, in Tim Hortons Field. So I had a chance to chat with uh, the head coach of Forge FC, Bobby Smirniotis, and of course the man himself, Ashton Morgan. Big retirement announcement, obviously an emotional one for any pro athlete. You've been at it this uh, for a while from... Uh, from West End United as a little yeah, uh, kid yeah. to uh, to uh, MLS international football, how would you surmise or summarize your your football career? Oh man, <laughs> uh, a lot of ebbs and flows. I climbed a lot of mountains to 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 get to where I've gone to to accomplish the beautiful wins, the losses, the draws, mm -hmm. everything. It's been a, a beautiful footballing life that I've uh, that I've had. You know. Uh, it's definitely not the easiest as a Canadian international, as a Canadian player, but uh, I definitely I found my enjoyment over my 13 seasons, and it's been uh, I'll never trade it for for anything else. When did you figure out that man? I can make a career out of playing the sport I love. Yeah, definitely. I think when I was 17, I played uh, in a Champions League game with TFC. I started as left back against uh, Arabia Unido, 
and I played a 90 minute game and I was like holy shit <laughs> I can do this and I, I love this and I want to be part of it and uh, yeah ever since then I knew I had a little bit to, to offer the city of Toronto and myself and my family so you know started there finished off in Hamilton where again I have roots here where my grandparents live and I've settled so it's been a uh, it's been an amazing journey for sure. A lot of people are wondering why this comes mid-season. Why not wait till the end or, or even before this season? What, what was the thought process behind that? Uh, you know, uh, opportunities come up. Things happen in life. Uh, you know, you know, I've a lot of had conversations with guys who have played from the, from the past. And, you know, there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's just, it's me, you know, and uh, it's the feelings that I have inside of myself and what I need to do for myself and my future and my family. So it's just... Uh, the you know the path that I, cho- I chose uh, during the off season was there a thought that this could be the last year uh potentially you know you never know you never know until you know essentially and uh in these moments here i, I knew and i feel it and uh you, know, you see i get emotional today of course because it's the game i love and the thing i know best you know but uh you know it also provides other opportunities off the field too so looking forward to my future you played at the highest level internationally with the national team there's not many people that get to do that um, what would your advice be to kids who are starting in the sport or, or developing and trying to reach for that level uh yeah it's it's on the easy road but don't get discouraged because you need to work hard every day and apply yourself every day mm-hmm. and make yourself uncomfortable you know get your be comfortable being uncomfortable is a big thing that I've tried to pride myself on as well and uh yeah it's uh it's an exciting life an exciting journey you know and so enjoy it you didn't have a long time with Forge FC but certainly a successful one what's what's the highlight again winning a trophy for this club you know (laughs) is adding silverware to this winning football club and in the city of Hamilton you know uh, I knew this team was a winning team and I wanted to get here and help and provide and give my all for the city and then for my teammates and, and for coach Bobby what has football done for you uh, again it's it's given me a, a beautiful life you know it, it, I started off as a boy and I've become a man in this game you know and now uh, I'll leave it to the young guys in the team and uh, I look forward to my future so what what are you up to nowadays like what what are you doing what are you transitioning to uh Things will happen. They're on their way for sure. But, uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to my future and uh, whether it's in football or not, but uh, super excited for it. Congratulations on a phenomenal career. Okay, appreciate that. Thank you very much. You're with Bobby Smirniotis, head coach of Forge FC. Um, one of your Titans has called it a career. What was the reaction? I know this isn't a, uh, a sudden thing. You guys have been talking about this for a while. When he officially said, okay, I'm done, what was going through your mind? Yeah, just uh, went through a lot of things I've done in the past with players, just uh, the process and, you know, kind of his thoughts and just making sure that, uh, you know, I can give him whatever support I can on it or any uh, or any second thoughts. You know, he's obviously a player uh, that's been uh, important to us and you don't want to lose um, during the season. Um, but, of course, like I said in the press conference, it's an individual decision and I'm always here to support the, support the players. And, you know, he's he's made that decision and uh, I think he's going to be fantastic in what he does next. Was there an, a little ounce of you to say, Ash, like, let's just wait till the end of the season. we got a good thing going here. I think the most important thing that I reiterated to him is just that he understood that he was an important part to what we're doing, an important part to the team, and, and just doing that. Uh, you know, he had a, a small injury that he was uh, overcoming over the last month and so on, and, and just that was the best that I can do to make him understand that he still has stuff to give to the game and that he's still important here. And I think that's the best thing to do as a coach is make sure that the player understands that you, you have his back. Uh, on the field and then you know once his final decision is I have his back off the field as well what do you think he's meant to the game of football in this country 
I think he's a great ambassador to 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 what it takes to play. You know, he's a, he's a player that's been doing uh, doing this for, for many years. MLS uh, here with the national team. You know, he's been part of every component of Canadian professional soccer. And I think you know he's a great role model for for young players. And I've said that about our young players here in the locker room. And you know, it's not only that; it's other young players playing this game. It's it's hard work. Go out there, take use all of your talent, but make sure you're putting in the work and the effort each and every day. It's times like this where, especially the young fans won't just see what's happening on the field now but his journey through this game that will maybe entice them to continue on yeah of course uh, because uh, football is uh, and like many sports it's not linear there's different uh, paths uh, to get places and there's different ways uh, to bring uh, to bring success you know he's had that success with uh, with Toronto FC and he's also had it in the CPL with with Forge and I think uh, that's a fantastic story to to tell you know winning an MLS Cup and a North Star Shield not many players uh, have that in their locker and I'm pretty sure he'll have that uh, for a while but you know our hope is in the future that there's more players uh, like that and he'll be a trailblazer for it as a successful coach at this level, do you see qualities within him that can make him a good coach as well? Yeah, there's absolutely definitely good qualities in, in him being part of a team, being part of a staff, whether that's as a coach, as a as a team manager, or something involved in, in personnel. You know, he has that because, you know, he's always inquisitive of the game, always talking about the game, but also, you know, a great person to have in the locker room as a coach, just as a as a sub coach uh, amongst their captains groups. And that's what, you know, a role he took uh, with the team this year and has done a great job. And yeah, I think that gives him a lot of uh, ability to keep on doing this in the future. So now you don't have Ash on the field or on the bench. What's the focus moving forward? Yeah, focus remains the same for us. You're only as good as uh, your next game. We've been playing some good football, but uh, we've got a big one coming up on uh, on Friday in in Calgary. Those are always uh, exciting games to play. You know, we've we've been playing some brilliant stuff uh, in the last few weeks, and you know, the goal is uh, to remain uh, at the top of this league. It's a it's a challenge. Um, you know, making sure we're motivating a team that's uh, that's won a lot. Um, sometimes that's our, that's our biggest challenge. It's not the football itself, um, but I think we've got a hungry group. Uh, everyone is good and focused, and we just keep on going. Appreciate the time. Good luck. Thank you. Bobby and Ash, good luck to them going forward. Forge at Cavalry FC Friday night. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.